Wellness Force Radio. Feelings are essential, but they can't dictate our actions. We literally infect each other with our emotions. We came here for a special purpose. Let the purpose unveil itself. Knowing without doing is the same thing as not knowing. They're not just trackers. I'm going to wear this and it's going to help me do the right thing. Wellness Force Radio episode 140 with Chris Kresser. Conventional medicine is absolutely fantastic for dealing with acute challenges. Like, you know, you get hit by a bus, you, you definitely want to go to the hospital and not the acupuncturist, at least not right away. But I think we can all agree it's failed miserably when it comes to addressing chronic disease. And that's the biggest challenge we face today. Seven of 10 deaths are now caused by chronic rather than acute problems. And 86% of the healthcare dollars that we spend go toward treating chronic disease. What's up, my friend? It's your host, Josh Trent, and welcome back to another episode for your weekly access to global experts in all things wellness as we discover the physical and emotional intelligence we need to live life well. On this episode, we're talking with my new friend and globally recognized leader in the fields of ancestral health, paleo nutrition, and functional and integrative medicine, Chris Kresser. This was actually my first time ever meeting Chris, and today I got the chance to talk with Chris in this in-depth and what I believe some people will feel is a very controversial episode about our current state of sick care. Yep, sick care, not health care, that we have in this country in a no-holes-barred discussion about human greed and the ivory towers that are holding back our healthcare system from truly making people feel, well, healthy. Isn't that the point? Isn't that why we have this system in place? Well, the world right now is looking at the greatest healthcare crisis ever. Chronic disease is shortening our lives, destroying our quality of living, bankrupting governments, and threatening the health of future generations. Sadly, conventional medicine, with its focus on managing symptoms has failed to address this challenge. The result is burnt out physicians, a sicker population, and a broken healthcare system. And this is why I'm so energized about having Chris on the show where he explains how we can change the paradigms around functional medicine and create a proactive health practice that greatly reduces our risk for many of the lifestyle-driven illnesses we see in the world. And I know you're going to enjoy this episode because you're going to feel it in his voice that Chris has a mission. It's to reinvent healthcare, reverse chronic disease, and help people create a wellness routine they truly love. We're going to talk about Chris's new book, Unconventional Medicine, his formula for what he believes causes most of our modern-day diseases, how we can shift the misguided paradigms around functional medicine, and how to avoid the misleading information from health studies that are funded by drug companies. We'll talk about the importance of taking personal responsibility and why Chris believes that yes, our genes load the gun, but it's the environment that pulls the trigger. Let's step into this on-fire and in-depth conversation with best-selling author Chris Kresser. Chris Kresser is a beacon of truth in our wellness world. He's a health detective who specializes in helping people with chronic, complex illnesses who have not been able to find help anywhere else. He's the CEO of Kresser Institute and the co-director of the California Center for Functional Medicine. He's also the creator of ChrisKresser.com and the New York Times bestselling author of The Paleo Cure. And his blog is one of the top-ranked natural health websites in the world. He's a licensed acupuncturist by trade but specializes in what he calls investigative medicine, by using modern lab testing and detailed questionnaires to determine the underlying cause of health problems rather than just suppressing the symptoms. Chris, welcome to the show. Josh, pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man, I'm so excited. I, I was telling you before we recorded here, this unconventional medicine, we know that right, really what we have right now is a sick care system. So yeah. this is a revolution. This is a massive revolution that I can't be 
even more stoked about that you're leading this, this reversing chronic disease. We're going to go into depths on your book. Everyone's going to be able to pick up a copy of this. It came out three days ago by the time this show goes live. You know, you're a father, you're a surfer, you're a professional, you're a speaker, you're an author. There's not much that you're not doing. <laughs> what is something fun that people don't know about you, man? There's so much about Chris Kresser online. Let's see. I've, I've been a lifelong martial artist. I got interested in Actually, from a very early age, I wanted to study martial arts, but my parents wouldn't let me because I was already kind of a brawler and they thought that that would make it worse. Little did they know that usually that actually has the opposite effect, right? Yeah. Um, it's actually a good thing for kids that fight a lot to do because it, they learn other ways of handling situations. They get more discipline, et cetera. Um, but I got into, I studied uh, Muay Thai, Thai boxing when I was in, in high school and trained with uh Richard Bustillo at IMB Academy, which is also owned by Dan Inosanto, who is Bruce Lee's, uh, one of his primary students. So oh, that wow. was- Wow, so you were trained by someone who was close to Enter the Dragon. <laughs> yeah, uh, IMB Academy for people who are in that, you know, Thai boxing world and martial arts world in general is a pretty cool place. I was fortunate to be close to that. And then as I got older, I started and got, you know, interested in Chinese medicine and started to get more interested in the Chinese martial arts and studying. Bagua and, and Xingyi and, and then a martial form of, of Tai Chi and, and Qigong. And that, that was a big part of my life for many years. I don't talk about it much, um, but it's something that I feel grateful for because I've, I've learned a lot through that, um, my relationship with that practice. And you operate with this calm confidence, Chris. So it's interesting, man, that the first part of your life, you said you were a brawler. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't have described me as someone who was calm when I was a kid. Uh, confidence, maybe, um, but and perhaps even overconfidence. But yeah, I was uh, I got in a lot of fights. I got in a lot of trouble. I was kind of a, a wrecking ball. Um, and so I think that's actually what drew me to meditation practice and the, the discipline of martial arts. And I started um, meditation when I was 17. My, my dad actually introduced it to me and he gave me many amazing gifts, but that was probably one of the best. I started in high school and um, 43 now, so I've been at it for over over 25 years. And I think that's been, it changed me in really fundamental ways. You know, it literally um, changed my relationship to people in the world around me. Um, and I don't really experience myself that way as I'm not a brawler, I'm not a I'm, I'm not. <laughs> well, now you're a dad. I mean, you don't seem like a brawler now. I mean, you, you have put so much quality information out there. When did you actually first start putting out info to our wellness world? I feel like 2009 was when I started looking at the Paleolithic and the Ancestral Framework. Was that kind of when you started to put out information or was it before 2009? Uh, before 2009, yeah. I, I think The Healthy Skeptic, which is the my first blog, yeah, I, I eventually retitled it as chriscresser.com, but I started The Healthy Skeptic way back in uh, 2008 or even 2007, mm -hmm. I think was my, my first post. And so since then, you've been putting out really trustworthy information, Chris, and I think this is the hardest part for people to actually just trust the info that's out there. We're swimming in mm -hmm. a sea of just all kinds of ideas and topics and quote what people should be doing. But I feel like people like yourself who have gone through multiple health journeys, you're the ones that actually have the credibility and you have the backstory along with the science and academia 
to really impact and help others, man. You were surfing your 20s in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. You got a ton of parasites. Do you feel like that was the beginning of you looking into this functional medicine space? Can you take us there? Because a lot of people have dealt with parasites, you know, H. pylori, things like this. Mm -hmm. What did that mean to you back then? Yeah, I mean, I was I was interested in health when I was, was growing up and in high school, I was a basketball player and, you know, I was interested particularly in health as it related to performance. And but I was I never imagined that I would have a career in healthcare. that, you know, I wasn't a kid who like when you asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, said doctor. Um, that was never on my list of, of things to be when I grew up. What was on your list? Um, just about everything else. <laughs> I was. Okay. I was one of these, I still am this way. I get interested in a lot of different things. And so to the frustration of my parents, it was like, you know, one week it was pilot and I wanted to fly remote control airplanes. And the next week I was getting really interested in, you know, uh, playing the guitar and, you know, I would start playing guitar and then I would stop two weeks later and, you know, start playing the saxophone. And I was that sort of kid. But when I did that travel and I got sick, you know, life has a way of making its own decisions and then you have a choice of whether to you know how to respond to that and yeah. so i recovered from the acute episode of that illness you know relatively quickly but as i've you know talked about on several occasions it took probably about a decade to fully you know to recover and even then i didn't recover to where i was 10 years before i recovered to my new reality you know 10 years later yeah and through that process, I just, I learned a lot, of course, and a lot of people started to ask me questions and I started to help them in, on an informal basis. And then uh, after, at some point, I just realized that I had a, a deep passion for this, I, that I, I realized that I had gained a lot of experience and information that could really help other people who'd been struggling in the same way that I had been. And like me, hadn't been able to find answers in the conventional system. And so that's when I decided to go back to school and formalize um what i was doing and and that was when i started my blog when i was still in school actually as mostly as a way of just keeping track of my research and thinking and and was pretty surprised when somebody left a comment on one of my blog posts <laughs> i mean back <laughs> yeah. then blogs were actually still thought of as kind of like journals you know oh yeah <laughs> like, i mean uh, blogs have totally shifted now i mean mm-hmm. really i don't even think that people see websites as blogs anymore even though right. that term is kind of still around well yeah what sparked this book now because you've gone through healing you said it took 10 years and you know you teach so many people about really shifting this mindset of sick care to healthcare, unconventional medicine. I mean, why now, Chris? Why not three years ago? Why not three years from now? What's so special about this timing for this book to come out? Yeah, because uh, it's a good question. I would say, you know, my first book was about taking back your own health as an individual. And this book is about taking back our healthcare, you know, as a, as a people and as a society. And I think the writing is really on the wall. Uh, Chronic disease is destroying our quality of life. One in two people now have chronic disease and one in four have multiple chronic diseases. 30% almost of kids have chronic disease, which is just heartbreaking. That's up from just 13% in 1994. So that's a profound change. I mean, I, I was in college in 1994. It's, it's within my lifetime. 
uh, within yeah. my adult life, we've seen more than a doubling of kids with chronic disease. That's that's shock, shocking <sighs> and heartbreaking. I mean, it makes me breathe heavy right there, man. It just shocks me when you said one in two. I mean, literally yeah. everyone listening, like breathe that in for a moment here. That's the severity of the situation. This isn't a fear mongering episode. This is just like, let's talk about it's the reality. Truth. Yeah, this let's is just the real it, truth. See it for what it is. And and the, the most the most heartbreaking statistic is that Today is the first generation of kids that's that's expected to live shorter lifespans than their parents. You know, think about that for a moment. You know, our lifespans have been increasing continually in the modern world since we started measuring them. They've always just gone up. That's the only direction they've gone, and that's the right direction for them to go. <laughs> and today is the first time to the first generation of kids that's actually expected to live shorter lives than, than their parents. And as a parent myself, a six-year-old daughter, that's um, really heartbreaking. Do you feel like as a father, this made you want to write the book even stronger? Absolutely. Yeah. When I saw those statistics about the, the health of future generations, it, it really motivated me. And we know conventional medicine is absolutely fantastic for dealing with acute challenges. Like, you know, if I get, you get hit by a bus, you, you definitely want to go to the hospital and not the acupuncturist, at least yes. not right away. But I think we can all agree it's done, it's failed miserably when it comes to addressing chronic disease. And that's the biggest challenge we face today. Seven of 10 deaths are now caused by chronic rather than acute problems. And 86% of the healthcare dollars that we spend go toward treating chronic disease. We're going to explore more of the economics and, and also for the parents listening, you know, what are some things that we can actually do, take some inspired action on. But but I want to go back to this one and two, one and four, this epidemic, this widespread epidemic, there's a few kind of strings that connect all the undercurrent of our modern disease. And it's how we've strayed, Chris, from these regular health pillars, you know, whether you believe in the paleo framework or the ancestral framework or not, there is just a genuine way of eating, moving and sleeping. And then, of course, thinking, feeling and acting. What do you believe the undercurrent is that is driving this epidemic? I mean, it's a really big question. Maybe there's not one specific answer, but but what are the handfuls of things that are driving this so people can get more clarity? Yeah, I, I think there are really um, three primary drivers. The first is that there's a profound mismatch between our genes and our biology on the one hand, which is you know what our bodies are, are, are hardwired for and our modern diet and lifestyle on the other. I mean, they're, they're just light years away. We know that all every organism in the environment is adapted to survive and thrive in a particular environment. So if you think about cats, they're carnivores. They're, they're designed to eat only meat. If you feed them, you know, kibble with grains and other stuff in it, they, their health suffers. And that's true for every, every kind of organism in nature. And it's true for humans as well. Now, we're not carnivores. We can eat a wide range of foods and still be healthy. But that doesn't include Twinkies, cheese doodles, super big gulps, and all the processed and refined foods that, that now con comprise over 50% of the calories that the average American consumes. 50% are those foods? 50%, yeah. Where yeah. does that data come from and where have you read that? Diet surveys. You know, the top six foods in the American diet by, by calories are grain-based desserts like cake and cookies, uh, bread, sugar-sweetened beverages like sodas. Uh, chicken dishes like fried chicken and alcohol. 
I just I don't even oh, know what and, to say to that. Oh, and pizza, I forgot one. So hold and on, pizza, so, so and pizza. all of these foods, the food groups. these are the main. These have been what uh, people have been consuming, and this is really what's driving. I cannot believe that I'm kind of dumbfounded actually that those were the foods. It's shocking when you actually put it on the screen. Like I have a slide, you know, presentation that I do that shows the our ancestral diet. You know, everyone, all of our human ancestors on the planet ate some combination of meat and fish wild fruits and vegetables, nuts yeah. and seeds, and some starchy plants, you know, like modern in the modern day, sweet potatoes and tubers, that kind of thing. Yep. You know, and, and it varied from place to place. Like in the Arctic, the Inuit, traditional Inuit, ate very high fat uh, diet because they didn't have access to a lot of plant foods. But in other parts of the world, like the South Pacific, the Kitavans ate a lot of, of fruit and starchy tubers. Um, so it, it, you know, it varied but what they all shared in common was what they weren't eating, which yeah. is all of that processed and refined food that comprises the basis of our diet. But it's not just diet. There are other fundamental changes. You know, our ancestors walked an average of 10,000 steps a day, which is like five miles. They didn't sit for long periods. They lived in natural sync with the or in sync with the natural rhythms of light and dark. You know, um, they didn't ha have a lot of exposure to artificial light at night. They weren't sitting up in their bed using their iPad until two in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, they lived in direct contact with nature and in, in close-knit tribal social groups. But today, about a third of Americans are getting fewer than six hours of sleep now. Um, we have people, uh, average American sits for an average of six hours or 60% of their day. And keep in mind, that's just an average. So that means that quite a few people are sitting a lot longer than that. Yeah. If you imagine a sedentary office worker who drives to work, you know, they sit on their way to work. Maybe they have an hour commute or a half hour commute. They then sit in the office, uh, they sit at lunch, then they sit the rest of the afternoon, then they sit on their way home in the car, and then they might sit and have dinner, and then they might sit on the couch and watch a couple hours of TV. And that's a profound difference in, in terms of its impact on our health and our, our typical way of, of moving. And it goes all the way down the line. You know, we have less time for leisure than hunter-gatherers and even contemporary hunter-gatherers have. We have less uh, social connection, more fragmented, you know, social environment. And it's almost like every uh, much gr greater burden of environmental toxins like heavy metals um, and, you know, uh, pesticides and herbicides and you know, chem chemicals and plastic like BPA. So, Yeah. You know, one response to this is just to be totally depressed. And right. I, I think that's that's <laughs> everyone's like, God, Chris, doom and gloom. But look, maybe we just actually get to take this in as truth and breathe it in and not ignore it anymore. Like, let's really right. face this truth here. That's right. The only way we can. I mean, this is something that I've definitely I feel like been learned from my my meditation practice is acceptance is a precondition for change. You can't change something if you first don't fully accept the reality of it. Um, because if you don't, we often end up in denial and, you know, putting our head in the sand and doing things to might distract ourselves from the reality of it, but we don't, we can't actually respond in an appropriate way. And so just letting this in and realizing the difference is the beginning of making a change. And the changes don't have to be dramatic. I mean, that's what's, that's, yeah. what's really interesting. If we go through that, you know, diet, is probably the biggest change in terms of the what what your diet will actually look like if you shift to a more ancestral template. But you know, uh, sleep, you know, shifting towards getting more like seven to eight hours of sleep instead of six. You know, you, it doesn't mean you have to become a luddite and 
you know, forgo the use of iPads and, and screens, but just being more judicious. You can put on some, some blue blocking glasses and you can install Iris. We've talked about this on the show before. Don't bring it into your bedroom. You know, like there are a lot of little steps that can make a big impact. And, you know, if you, you can work at a standing desk, if you, if you have the opportunity to do that, or if, if you can't do that, and you commute to work, maybe take public transportation and get off on a stop that's like one or two stops away from your office and walk the remainder of the way there and on the way back. And instead of having lunch at your desk, maybe take uh, have a, a walking meeting or, or, you know, go for a walk with a friend. And, you know, instead of having meetings at your desk, you can go for walking meetings. Instead of taking the elevator up three floors, you can actually walk the stairs and, and instead of standing on the escalator at the airport, walk up the escalator or walk or take the stairs instead. Guys, just walk the stairs. How, how about the people mover? You know, the, oh, that's those, even worse. That's even worse. Yeah. Like, and, and, so and bad. you know, this is no judgment to anyone because I think humans are programmed to conserve energy. So if you put something like an escalator or a, or a people mover in front of someone and they're not thinking consciously about it, they will they will do that because in, in a natural environment, that would be a survival advantage, you know, to conserve yeah. energy, to have more of it for when you really need it, like you're getting chased by a lion or something. Sure. Or, uh, I mean, our, we were designed to be very efficient, right? To save energy, to eat food when we see it. And if we ever came across sugar or salt or fat, we would consume as much as we could. I want to go back though, Chris, because you said genes, foods was the third category lifestyle. When we look at the undercurrent right. of what's driving this epidemic. You know, that that's everything from physical activity to our social support. There's a a study that just blows me away. I talked about my first book on a paleo cure, which is that lack of social support is a bigger risk factor for early death than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. (laughs) That just absolutely blew me away. Cause I think if you ask most people, they would have no idea that, you know, not having enough social support was actually more dangerous for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes in a day. How would you define that, man? The social support piece? It's a pretty broad category. One of the most important things is having a confidant, someone that you can talk to and share things, you know, get things off your chest with, basically. And just even having a single confidant in your life can make a gigantic difference. But something like 25% or more uh, of Americans don't have even one confidant in their life, um, much less more than one, which is better in terms of the health impacts. Do you feel like possibly digital and our perceived connection through digital, even though it's not, it's it's kind of like a false connection, is that driving the piece where people don't have any social support they really need or that confidant you were mentioning? I think that definitely plays a role, but I think there are numerous factors that are all intertwined. Um, you know, today, uh, the average American is working a lot more hours than they were uh, back in the 70s. And that work has just completely infiltrated all different aspects of life. Like so even when people go on vacation, they're often checking social media, checking email, including work email. So they're not really on vacation. You know, when I was growing up, this term play date didn't even exist. You know, you didn't have play dates. You just we just went out our front door and like played with the kids on the street. You know, yeah. that, that was the, the environment. But today life is just so different and so busy that, you know, you, we need to like schedule play dates for our daughter with her friends in advance. You know, it's um, I think it's a combination of just the pace of life. And then also, yeah, these these digital connections, which look, I mean, you and I wouldn't even be having this conversation if, if the digital world didn't exist oh, yeah. as it does. So we're it's not, got a plus and a con. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the the second reason that I think chronic disease has overtaken us is our medical paradigm is not suited to tackle it. You know, our medical paradigm evolved during a time when acute problems were the biggest challenges we faced. Like, you know, back in 1900, the top three causes of death were typhoid, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. So those are all acute infectious diseases, right? And people would also go to the doctor if they broke their arm or they had an appendicitis uh, or, you know, gallbladder issue. And treatment was pretty simple. You just remove, uh, put the bone in a cast or remove the gallbladder appendix or eventually once we had antibiotics, prescribe one of those for, for the infection, and that was it. Today, our landscape has totally changed. As I said, most, most of the primary challenge we face is not acute problems, it's chronic problems. And our system is just really um, not set up to deal with those. They're, they're complex, they are difficult to manage, and they usually last a lifetime, so they don't lend themselves well to that you know, single doctor, single problem, single treatment method. Today's typical patient has sees multiple doctors, often a different doctor for every different part of the body, right? Yeah. In our system. And, and these physicians they, are overstressed, overmaxed. How with seven minutes is a typical office visit, right? Eight, eight to twelve minutes. Eight to twelve and minutes. How average, is that even enough to scratch the surface on what that human is experiencing? It's not. Uh, it's barely enough to say hello and prescribe a, a medication, you know, based on the symptoms and the average amount of time a patient gets to speak before being interrupted by the doctor is uh, 12 seconds. So again, I wanna be clear here, I'm not knocking doctors on an individual level because actually I I think most doctors go into medicine for the right reasons and they really do wanna help people and help their patients, but um, they're as much victims of the system as the patients are. Well, let's have some compassion for these physicians because they go through an incredible amount of training and skill sets and everything else. And then when they get into the system, it's set up for insurance reimbursements and everything else. They're just doing the best they can, right, Chris? Absolutely. In a really difficult situation. I talk to so many doctors because I, you know, I train, I have a training program where I train doctors and, and other practitioners in functional medicine and ancestral diet and lifestyle. And I, you know, universally hear from them that they're frustrated, they're burned out, they feel like they're in, in a factory type of environment. They, they want to, to spend more time with their patients. They know that their patients need to make diet and lifestyle changes, but they don't have time to talk to, about them in a meaningful way. And not only that, they don't have support in terms of like actually helping their patients to put those into practice. So mm. uh, we know that information now is, is not, information is not enough to change behavior. Like uh, when people are making the wrong choices about diet and lifestyle, they, they know that. Amen. <laughs> it's, it's not a question of like someone eating pizza and grain based desserts, you know, like cakes and cookies and drinking sodas. Like they, they know that those are not healthy foods. Yeah. But knowing is not enough to change behavior. Behavior change is hard. And we actually need to give people meaningful support in that. So imagine if you went to the doctor and you had high cholesterol. You know, what happens now is they give you a drug, statin drug, to lower it, and there's no investigation into what causes it. And what's more, the insurance company will pay for that statin drug. You know, if you really had to pay the full cost of that statin drug, most people would not take it, right? Yeah. <laughs> they would say, forget this, it's way too expensive. But imagine if you went into the doctor and the doctor said, look, you've got high cholesterol, but you know, we could give you a drug, but that's not really going to solve the underlying problem. That's just going to put a Band-Aid on it. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to assign you a health coach 
and we're going to cover that. Your insurance, good news, your insurance company is going to cover that. And they are going to come to your house and do a pantry clean out. They're going to take you shopping, show you what kind of foods to buy. They're going to give you a meal plan and some recipes. And also we're going to hook you up with a gym membership. And good news, your insurance pays for that as well. And we're going to set you up with a trainer at the gym to get you started so you know what you're doing there. You're going to have a check-in with your health coach every week. You're also going to have a check-in with our nurse practitioner who can take some labs and help make sure you that, that you're getting the changes that we want you to get. And within six months, your cholesterol is going to be normal. But not only that, you're going to feel a million times better. You're going to feel more uh, energetic and positive and confident. And you're going to be empowered to take control of your own health instead of just being a passive recipient of a drug uh, that doesn't do any of that. And, and we're going to cover all that. And you know what? That would actually be cheaper in the long run than just giving the patient a statin because you're going to prevent cardiovascular disease and something you know like type 2 diabetes and those diseases cost thousands of dollars to the healthcare system to treat. This is such a powerful point. I want to pause you here so people can really take this in. We look at medicine and pharma, the subsidization that you talked about where it's perceived as cheap. You know what's interesting, Chris? It's the same thing with the food system, big yep. food and fast food. We think that a 99 cent hamburger is cheap. We don't realize how many subsidies came in on the production line to make that hamburger 99 cents. And it's the same way that people have their mindset around insurance. You're actually saying that if we fix it up front, it's cheaper than if we wait till somebody has that chronic disease. Yeah, I'll give you a very real world example of this. It costs $14,000 a year to treat one patient with type 2 diabetes. And so let's imagine a patient gets diagnosed at age 40 and they live to age 85, uh, which is possible. Get, you know, we have this amazing technology that keep people alive for, you know, for a long time. Yeah. So let's, they live 45 years, $14,000 a year. That's $630,000 over the lifetime of that one patient to treat that one disease. But you know they're not going to have just one disease because type 2 diabetes has all kinds of complications and comorbidities. So as they get older, they'll probably get cardiovascular disease. They'll develop, you know, tissue damage and neuropathy and things like that that have to be treated. And, and eventually they'll become disabled and they won't be able to work. So you have indirect costs related to lost wages and productivity. So we could easily assume that that would be a million dollar cost to the healthcare system for just that one patient. Now, if that patient comes to me with prediabetes and even early stage type 2 diabetes, I am 99% confident that I will be able to reverse that completely with, with diet, lifestyle, behavior change, and maybe some functional medicine. And I can do that for you know, far less than $10,000, but let's just be super conservative for, yeah. you know, and say it's $10,000. So we just saved the healthcare system uh, you know, more than $900,000 for that one patient for that lifetime. Wow. And that's not an exaggeration. Those are real costs. They're not costs that are coming out of the patient's pocket directly, but they're costs that we are incurring as a society. There's no free lunch. Yes. You know, uh, we're paying those in the form of insurance premiums. We're paying them in the form of our taxes. We're paying them in the form of, you know, a growing financial burden and debt that's predicted that the U.S. will be, be bankrupted by healthcare expenditures if we don't get a handle on them by 2035. That's all within most people's lifetime who are listening to the show. Absolutely. You explore this too in chapter eight, the paradigm shift, functional medicine as true healthcare. I want to paint an even bigger picture, Chris, is that we have this economic impact that you're trying to 
do your absolute best with your community to shift. And I think this book is helping to do that. We also look at environment. You had mentioned that we can save this up front. And you've also said in many podcasts and all across media that genes load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. Mm -hmm. Can you expound upon that? You know, at one point, maybe back in the 80s, after uh, 90s, there was a lot of enthusiasm for sequencing the human genome. And the idea was that if we did that, we would understand the roots of all human disease. You know, then we would develop these incredible uh, drugs that could target all of these chronic diseases. And, and, and that would be uh, great. Unfortunately, it didn't really work out that way. <laughs> so mm. what we now know is that 85% of the risk of disease comes down to environmental and behavioral factors. And that doesn't mean genes aren't important or they don't play a role in predisposing us to what disease we're actually going to get or develop, but they're not the main driver when it comes to chronic disease. So to use an example, let's say you take 100 hunter-gatherers who are living their traditional diet and lifestyle and they're free of chronic disease, which is what happens uh, when people live their traditional diet and lifestyle. And then you brought them from their hunter-gatherer environment into New York City, you know, or any other, <laughs> any other, you know, industrialized. I think they might pass world. out. And they quickly adopt, you know, our 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 American diet and lifestyle. Well, those hundred people wouldn't all get the same disease. Twenty or thirty of them would get type two diabetes and become obese, but maybe another twenty or thirty would 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 develop some kind of autoimmune disease. Uh, like MS or, you know, Hashimoto's and maybe another 10, 15 would, would develop Alzheimer's and dementia as they got older and another 10 would develop a skin issue like psoriasis or eczema. That's the genes at work there. So I have a kind of formula, a mathematical formula. Don't, don't be worried. It's very simple. I'm not a, I'm not a math guy myself, but I think of it this way. Genetic predisposition plus modern lifestyle equals modern disease. So that's a simple way of thinking about it. When you you add our modern lifestyle to our genetic predisposition, you get modern disease, but which modern disease you get depends entirely on those on that genetic predisposition. That is such an easy to understand formula and I'm not a mathematician either, so that I completely got that. <laughs> Hear what Chris just said and take that in. Chris, you talk about this genetic predisposition, modern lifestyle, that's the equal of disease. When I look at myself, I'm an APOE 3-4. A lot of people right now are pushing the ketogenic diet and that's fine because a lot of people are getting fantastic results. For someone like myself though, these APOE 3s and 4s, what, what have you seen in your practice and your research that our diet gets to intend? In other words, do we still need saturated fat like the APOE's ones and twos? Yeah, I think that is another area that eventually genes can be useful in and customizing our diet and lifestyle, you know, how we eat, how we exercise, our sleep needs, our caffeine intake and things like that. But I think uh, we've gotten out a little far ahead of ourselves in that regard. I, you know, I'm not super impressed with some of the consumer facing companies that are using genes to make these kind of recommendations because I think they are underselling the complexity of, of genomics. So um, genetics is the study of single genes and how, you know, how single gene interactions uh, affect our health. But genomics is really what we need to be looking at, which is the study of how genes interact. And, you know, to give you an example, like, Sometimes you'll see, you know, one person has a certain gene that might downregulate or reduce the expression of a particular function in the body. 
but then they have another gene that actually increases that function. <laughs> so what's, you know, maybe those cancel each other out and it's not really that relevant. But if you, if you spit that through like a computer algorithm, you know, these services that interpret your, your genes, you're going to get like on one, a recommendation to take a, you know, one supplement based on this gene. And then on, then it'll say in on the next page to absolutely avoid that supplement because you have the other gene. (laughs) So it's, it's really confusing. And it's, you know, I think we're at a place where we can make certain recommendations with some certainty, but not as much as I see currently being done. Do these get exacerbated if somebody has a system like, you know, the gut lining, if their intestinal tract is permeable and they have leaky gut, would it even matter if they focus their diet on APOE and eating a certain way for three, four, one, two, or do they really yeah. just need to look at the leakiness in the gut first? That's where environment trumps genes. You know, you could have someone who has APOE three, four, 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 but they're taking care of themselves in every way and they're doing great job. And then you have someone who's APOE 3-3 and they're not. That person with 3-3, even though they have a lower absolute risk of acquiring cardiovascular disease or, you know, or dementia on paper, they're certainly going to be at higher risk. If, uh, it's so, so that's where I say environment almost always trumps genes. Now, there's, there are yeah. certain genes that are just, you know, that's the 15%. When I said 85% of disease is caused by, you know, driven by environment, there are those small number of conditions like cystic fibrosis, for example, where if you, if you have the gene, you will have the condition, you know, it's, it's not something that you can fix with your diet or lifestyle per se. Um, but those diseases are in, and conditions are in the minority. And even with conditions like MT or, or, or genes like MTHFR, if you look at, for example, uh, the Italians, Italians have a very high uh, prevalence of MTHFR polymorphisms, which means you would expect them to have also a high incidence of, of neural tube defects because that's one of the expected results of having that uh, that mutation. But actually, despite their high prevalence of MTHFR mutations or, or polymorphisms, uh, the Italians do not have a, a high rate of neural tube defects. So that suggests that they're doing something in their diet and lifestyle that is compensating for that increased risk and that that compensation trumps uh, or you know uh, outweighs the risk that is conferred by that gene. So I think we really need to keep that in mind. I think you brought up a great point, man. It's like people always go, Chris, I feel like to the most complicated thing first or the most novel thing first, whatever the industry is focused on, yet the fundamental health pillars always exist and those have to be really strong first. I think there's, in my opinion, we've had so many guests on the show that have come on and just really owned this space of leaky gut, in other words, intestinal permeability. I remember we had Dr. Promoter on the show and he told a story about how he was literally chastised for even bringing this up early in his career. Why do you feel with your work that there's still this ambiguity around if leaky gut actually is a thing? You know, old paradigms die hard. <laughs> it's, it's really what I think it is. It's just um, there's a phenomenon known as groupthink, which you've probably heard of, where if you know a number of people hold the same opinion, that w- whether that opinion is valid, it it's, um, can be difficult for minority members of the group who have a different opinion to get any traction with their idea. And we've seen this over and over again in so many different ways, but particularly in medicine. A great example of this is back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, it was widely accepted that ulcers, 
stomach ulcers were caused by stress and things like spicy foods and you know alcohol intake and a couple of Australian uh, physicians introduced the concept that actually uh, a pathogen, a bacterium, a spirochete bacterium uh, called Helicobacter pylori or H. pylori, which you mentioned earlier, is actually uh, the primary driver of ulcers. And they, when they presented this idea at the conference, they were literally laughed off the stage. I mean, they were ridiculed. This was like, ha, 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 ridiculous. You know, we know that ulcers are caused by stress. Yes. How do we know it? Because everyone thinks that. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, the, yeah. that's the group think, right? And then they kept working to their credit uh, and trying to get this idea out there and they kept meeting just huge, huge resistance. And one of the researchers, I think it was Marshall, I'm not sure, it could have been Warren, um, it's Marshall and Warren that were the, the doctors. He got so desperate to prove this idea that he actually swallowed a vial of H. pylori. He, he put a bunch of H. pylori bacteria in a small vial with, with water or whatever, liquid, and swallowed it, developed an ulcer as a result, and then treated himself with antibiotics and cured himself of the ulcer, proving that not only you know, that the, the H. pylori was the cause of it, but that the, you know, eliminating the H. pylori would eliminate the ulcer. And it was only then that people in, in the field began to pay attention to him. And, and believe it or not, even then, they still got resistance. It took, still took several years or even a decade after that for that to become widely accepted and to, to trickle, you know, for that theory to, to move from the, the research literature into the average primary care provider's office. Well, then the higher point here is really, so you made this beautiful example. By the way, I just can't even imagine this person doing that, but thank you to him for being what, the outlier. What an amazing warrior for what science. What a total you know? wellness warrior. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. man. But I, I look at the example you just made for that, for ulcers. Can we make that same example for functional medicine and the way that we're being proactive with health? What do you think? Does somebody need to go on stage and literally create a case study where they give themselves a disease and then heal themselves through functional medicine and then present that to the AMA? I mean, what do we do here? Well, I think that's happening. You know, Dr. Mark Hyman, who's pioneer, uh, probably done more for advancing the concept of functional medicine, uh, aside from Dr. Jeff Bland, who founded Institute for Functional Medicine. Uh, he has recently started a center for functional medicine at Cleveland Clinic, which is a very prestigious progressive medical institution that's well known around the world. You know, it's the place where people who are, are able to afford it go when they, you know, want the most advanced treatment possible. And the fact that Cleveland Clinic has acknowledged functional medicine as a legitimate approach and that they've invested tens of millions of dollars in creating a center for functional medicine and that they now have a wait list of almost 3,000 patients from nine different countries around the world, 25% of whom are totally new to Cleveland Clinic, which shows that functional medicine is driving demand mm. for a Cleveland clinic shows that we're, you know, even though functional medicine is still relatively unknown amongst the general public, that that's already changing. If you look at the search volume for functional medicine on Google, it's tripled just in the past five years alone. And the success of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine 
just shows that you know we're on the precipice of a big change here. And we had Kathy Hutchinson, who was a client I worked with in the past. She talked about her story of using a functional medicine approach, and she was able to uncover things that had been in her body. One of them was this MTHFR, another one how she was methylating, another one that she was yeah. actually gluten intolerant. But she wouldn't have known this, Chris. If she didn't yeah. go the functional route, I mean, typical physicians are not taught this way. This is what your book is all about. It's shifting us from this reactive care to finally just honestly just being loving to ourselves and being loving to this world we have. And that is creating a revolution where we can reverse this chronic disease. What do you think is getting in the way? I know that's a massive question, but what's kind of blocking the growth of functional med? At the top level, we can look at the uh, misalignment of incentives. So, you know, right now, doctors you know in, in aggregate are just are not really rewarded for high quality care they're rewarded for the number of patients that they see the number of procedures that they do again that's not the fault of individual doctors that's the way the system is set up but that creates an environment where quality is not rewarded and quantity and volume is uh, so that's a big problem we have conflicts of interest in medical research two-thirds of medical research are funded by pharmaceutical companies and we know from very um, rigorous research that studies that are funded uh, by a drug company are less likely to report unfavorable results. That's just a common sense thing, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Upton Sinclair famously said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary is dependent upon him not understanding it. Hmm. <laughs> One of my favorite man, quotes. Man, that is so powerful. You know, uh, problems with, with payment models. We've got uh, f fraud and other conflicts of interest. So, so there's a lot of financially vested interest in, in maintaining the status quo in our current paradigm. Um, but beyond that, I think it comes down to some of the other things that I mentioned before where there's not enough of a recognition that behavior, lifestyle, and diet are the primary drivers of chronic disease. And there's no support in the system for those interventions that would make the biggest impact. Um, so that goes back to the example I used earlier, where if you go to the doctor with high cholesterol, instead of getting your insurance company covering a health coach and a gym membership and your first few months of healthy groceries, they're covering a drug that's not going to actually address the the things that need to be addressed. Uh, and then the last thing is just our medical paradigm is it evolved during a time when uh, acute problems were the biggest issue. And it's very good at that. Yeah. It excels at that. We can do incredible stuff. I mean, I, I just want to emphasize this because I'm not an uh, overly critical of conventional medicine. It has its place. Yeah. And, you know, being able to restore sight to the blind now, uh, we, sure. we can reattach limbs. Um, antibiotics just dramatically decrease the death and morbidity from infections. And, you know, it's, it's incredible what we can do. We need doctors who can do colonoscopies and who can remove cancerous tumors and who can uh, use their all of their expert training in the way that uh, we need them to use it. But that is not enough on its own. We also need this diet, lifestyle, and behavior intervention. I think of a world where traditional medicine practice and functional medicine, they're equally as powerful and they're equally accepted. And I think we're going that direction. You have the Kressler Institute. Reed Davis has functional diagnostic nutrition. We see so many people that are driving this bleeding edge of real proactive health care. What do you think right now from a policy standpoint that the government could be doing? What can we be looking at from a monetary or a funding perspective when we look at functional med having the same equal power of traditional med? In other words, certification bodies, things like this. 
If you look at spending right now, I, I mentioned 86% of our healthcare spending goes to treating chronic disease, but just 3% goes towards public health initiatives. Those are things that would actually educate people on, you know, diet, lifestyle, behavior. As I mentioned before, education and information aren't enough. So we need to actually spend more on things like, you know, what would it look like if we actually did subsidize health coaching, you know, and include that in people's insurance plan? What would it look like if we subsidize gym memberships. And this might sound like a pipe dream, but there are actually, there's a, a Native American tribal group in, in Oklahoma, I'm forgetting the name of it right now, but because they can operate kind of autonomously, you know, and they have their own money from the casino uh, income, they're doing some very, very interesting experiments where they are uh, subsidizing delivery of grass-fed beef to their members, they're subsidizing gym memberships, they're subsidizing health coaching and they're having, you know, they're, they're doing some really progressive stuff. I want to be part of this tribe, man. Yeah. Yeah. Again. So this only sounds unusual and strange because we've, we haven't done it this way. It doesn't mean we couldn't, and it doesn't mean that we wouldn't save an enormous amount of money over time. But in order to make these changes, we need to extricate some of the entrenched financial interests that, as I said before, are deeply invested in maintaining the status quo. And again, that might seem unrealistic, but that's only because that's how we've done it all along. If you look at other countries in the world, the pharmaceutical companies don't have the same hold over their system that they do here. And yeah. drugs drugs are far cheaper. Uh, we're the only country other than New Zealand that allows direct-to-consumer drug advertising, you know, like uh, ads for drugs in magazines. And there's a reason that the other every other country in the world has chosen not to do that. It's a really bad idea. So we, I agree, we, we need change to happen on an individual level. Um, people need to, to understand that they need to play a bigger role in their own health and, and not just be passive recipients of drugs. We've trained, unfortunately, we've trained people to expect that. Yeah. So it needs to happen on a the level of the medical paradigm and how we switch, you know, make those changes, which we've already talked about. It needs to happen on state and federal government level uh, in terms of realigning incentives, making changes in our in our healthcare system, and you know, standing up to the the deeply entrenched financial interests. I want to ask a, a pinpoint question here because yeah. I think for a long time, even when I was a trainer in gyms, you know, it was like ten years, and a lot of my motivation came from just anger. I was so angry about the system and how, like you're describing, Chris, it's set up for yeah. these vested interests to continue to propagate disease and while they make money. And I think that just was a driver for me. But we know that anger. And, you know, tension, it can only motivate us for so long. At some point, our motivation for change has to come from love and inspiration, you know, a focus on what's possible. What do you see possible, man, from that motivational source of love and expanding the mind towards, hey, we can really change things here. We don't have to just operate from frustration and anger about the current paradigm. That's a great question. I actually believe that the future of medicine is functional medicine and conventional medicine coming together. And, and we won't even call it functional medicine anymore. We'll just call it good medicine, you know, yeah. using all of our modern technology and, and incredible advancements that we've made in, in terms of addressing acute and, and trauma and emergency care doing that within a larger overall context of understanding that uh, diet, lifestyle, and behavior are the primary drivers of chronic disease and that we, in order to really survive, we have to prevent and reverse chronic disease instead of just manage it after it's occurred. And the only way to do that is with the 
ancestral diet and lifestyle and a functional medicine approach. And I think we need to remember that as in the words of Margaret Mead, you know, I'm going to paraphrase her, never doubt that a small group of concerned citizens can make a profound change. And that's in fact, the only way that it's ever happened. Gosh. And I think some people feel overwhelmed, you know, someone's listening and they're a parent. I want to ask you a few questions about being a dad. And I think a lot of people, they just don't have the emotional bandwidth because Chris, this sick care system for most, it seems incredibly overwhelming to the point where someone would think their own health, their own voting with their dollars and what food they purchase won't make a difference, but it's actually the reverse. If all of us came together, like you just paraphrased, and we just chose to make these proactive steps and be this citizen scientist, you know, the CEO of our own health, whether we're going through some kind of training for health knowledge or just taking a stand and making a decision in our lives, I will be part of the solution by being healthy in my own body. Is that the biggest impact that anyone can make? Absolutely. And when you do that, it doesn't matter as much what else is going on, you know, around, with the government and, and decisions that are outside of your control. Uh, and you'll be more fulfilled and healthy and in a more stronger place to actually work towards those bigger changes. All right. Well, last couple of questions, Chris. This has been a great talk together, man. We could probably do another podcast just on parenting, and I'm sure you have. <laughs> um, but as a father, how have you seen your life change and the way you approach your wellness and your health as a father, as a parent? What shifted from when you were single? The biggest shift when you become a parent, as I'm sure most parents can agree, is life is no longer just about you. And in fact, it's not even primarily about you anymore. Uh, it's about how can I show up in the most compassionate and supportive way for my daughter and um, nurture her into becoming you know, the, the best human being that she can be. And everything really, for me at least, flows from that. And you know, when I'm thinking about my work and the changes I want to make, I'm thinking of her and, and her friends and, and future generations. And she's also, you know, the, the greatest source of joy and happiness in, in my life. And so it, it you know, it, it almost sounds trite because you often hear parents say this and I heard all parents, t you know, say this before I became a parent, but you really, I really couldn't comprehend the, the scale of change and, mean, and, and meaning and purpose that comes from being a parent before I was one. And I see that same fuel source, that inspirational fuel source based on love in my brother with his two daughters. Chris, yeah. last question before we say goodbye. We look at wellness in our current space and our current modern kind of crazy industrialized world. How would you define wellness in your life? I would define it as living a rich, fulfilling and rewarding life. Too often we think of health as or wellness as the absence of symptoms, um, but I think that that's problematic because I know people who are, who are healthy in that way. They, they don't have any symptoms, but they're uh, you know depressed, unfulfilled, angry. They don't have good relationships, and I wouldn't refer to that person as well or healthy. On the other hand, I know people who have a chronic disease that maybe they're managing it as well as they can. They still deal with symptoms, and yet they're out there changing the world and loving other people and, and, and they've healed themselves and, you know, on the deeper level that goes beneath, you know, how they feel in a moment to moment physically. And so I would define wellness in that more expansive way. Well, Chris, I want to acknowledge you for a minute here on the air and just thank you for the huge impact and the ripple effect you're making in our wellness world, man. The book is Unconventional Medicine. The site is Chris Cresser or is it Cresser Institute? Where can people learn the most about you, pick up the book and dive in? 
Sure. So chriscresser.com uh, for both consumers and practitioners. That's uh, uh, and my my blog and podcast are there, and a lot of free eBooks on various health topics. Cresserinstitute.com is geared more toward practitioners, both MDs and DOs and other licensed practitioners, but also health coaches and nutritionists. And then unconventionalmedicinebook.com is where you can learn more about the book. Chris, thanks again. I feel like we were just getting warmed up. So at some point down the road, maybe we can talk about resistance starch, but we appreciate you and everything you do, man. I'd love to. Yeah. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate your time and keep up the fantastic work. Hey, my friend, thank you for hanging out and growing with me on today's show. Remember to hit subscribe, share this podcast with somebody you care about that you think gets to hear this message. Support the show by leaving a five-star review for the podcast right now, simply by tapping on your show artwork on your iPhone. Click that purple link that says review this podcast. It helps the show reach more conscious and smart people like you, and your voice will attract more world-class guests that want to come on the show. So let them hear your voice. For all the downloads, videos, links, and free resources mentioned on the episode, go to wellnessforce.com forward slash radio. And while you're at my house on the web, join us in the Wellness Force community newsletter on that page and I'll send you four free guides around staying healthy with your eating, moving, and sleeping while you travel. Join a group of people like you over at the Wellness Force community Facebook page. This is where we talk about the things that really matter. We share our wins, inspirations, struggles, and a lot more. So join us, tap on the show artwork on your phone and hit that purple link that says join the Facebook group and I will welcome you at the door. Okay, now you get to go out into your world and create impact for the people that you care about. So until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.